tonight, we're going to try to get you one more time to love like Jesus. Amen? Somebody say, Jesus breaks bread. Tonight, we're going to talk about how Jesus breaks bread. We've talked the last few weeks about how uh, Jesus washes feet, how he did not come as a king, but he came to serve other people. And when you really love like Jesus, you find yourself serving the needs of others, not putting yourself first, not, not holding to your own uh, private agenda, but, but he who is greatest in the kingdom, the Bible says, will be the last in the kingdom. And so Jesus uh, came to wash feet. And not only that, but Jesus forgives. Amen. We talked two weeks ago about how Jesus forgives and how if we really want to love like Jesus, we have to let people in our lives get up. When they cross us, we got to let them get up. Amen. We got to let them get back on their feet. We've got to forgive like Jesus forgave. And so tonight we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics in the world. Somebody say food. Amen. Anybody love food in the house tonight? Come on. We're about to have some church. That's Brother Dennis back there. Amen. My goodness. You know, meals are my favorite time of day. How many of you wake up, you just think about eating? You know, while you're eating, you think about what you're going to eat the next time you eat. We love meals. Have you ever sat and talked about food for an entire meal, about other kinds of food that you like? Eating tacos, but oh man, I really like steak and, and potatoes. And we do that all the time at our house. My wife's kind of a foodie. She loves food. She went to culinary school for a little while. And um, before she figured out that being a, a preacher's wife and working in a restaurant and in the food industry just doesn't kind of click together very well. But she, and I'll say this that I was blessed immensely by the talents that she learned, so much that I had to go on diets and all of that. We love food around our house, meals are a point of contact. In fact, meals, I believe, are made for fellowship. Friendships are formed around the table. And uh, you never meet a new friend and say, hey, you want to get together and do taxes? What do you say? You meet someone new, you kind of like them, you like to build a relationship with them. What do you say? Hey, can we grab lunch sometime? Why don't we grab coffee? Coffee is like the introductory. Like, I don't know if I want to be your friend, so we'll just have a beverage that can be finished quickly. But when you start developing relationships, you form them around the table. Let's have dinner. Let's do lunch. You know, meals are a part of our Pentecostal heritage. I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm going to drop some revelation on y'all tonight. They're a part of our Pentecostal heritage. Amen. If you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. Because going out to eat after church when I was growing up was a big deal. In fact, our church was of the size, it was growing, but everybody went. And my dad was crazy enough a lot of times to pay for everybody. He had 40 or 50 people in the restaurant strolling in five minutes before close. Are y'all still open? I guess we are. <laughs> Waiters looking sad that they're not going to get home. But we would drag in and the whole church would go to eat together. In fact, it got to the point that if we ever went straight home after church, the kids felt robbed. We all were complaining. What? What is going on here? Where's our, our meal? Where, where's our going out to eat tonight? It's part of our heritage. Anybody remember potlucks? Y'all know who to eat and who not to eat at a potluck, don't y'all? Y'all can go right back. <laughs> y'all ever gone through a potluck line and say, who made this? <laughs> That's our heritage, y'all. <laughs> That's where we come from. Meals together. 
Dinner on the grounds. I remember they planned a big tent revival at my church when I was a kid. I'd never heard of dinner on the grounds. They said, why don't we do a dinner on the ground? I didn't hear the S. And I, I went to my mom later and I tugged on her skirt. I said, Mom, why do they want to have dinner on the ground? Why don't we just sit at a table? I, I, I had no idea. Dinner on the grounds. Y'all remember those days where everybody would bring something and everybody would eat together and spend time around the table together? It was, it's a part of our heritage. In fact, there was a, a preacher that used to come through. If I said his name, most of y'all would know who he is tonight. But he used to come through uh, when he would preach for my, my dad at our home church. Um, he would go out to eat, and he always had kind of a list of places that he wanted to hit in the city when he came. And they would go to the restaurant, and then when they got done at the restaurant, he, he would say, you know, I, I think I want to stop over here and get some dessert. And they would leave, and they would matriculate over to the dessert place, and they would have a dessert. And he would sit there, and he'd say, you know, there's a little coffee spot that I'd like to hit after this dessert. And before you knew it, they didn't just go out to eat. They went three or four places before they went back to the room, took a nap, went to go have church again so they could go do it all again that night. He loved the table. But really, food matters, doesn't it? Meals matter. Meals are full of significance. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on our way to becoming one. In fact, the word companion comes from two words that uh, are separate, and, and they mean this, together and bread, pan and kum, uh, panis and kum. Together, bread. That's what the word companion means. Somebody that you eat with. Amen? Anybody have any companions? People that you eat with, right? And so we, we often talk about why Jesus came. In fact, there, there are three times in the New Testament that uh, the Scripture tells us that the Son of Man came in a certain way. Uh, Luke, or Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So how did he come? Uh, he, he came um, because he was going to serve and give his life away. That's, somebody said that's why he came. Luke 19 says the Son of Man came to seek and to sa uh, save that which was lost. In Luke 19.10. So that's why he came. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about why Jesus came. But have you ever pulled back and thought about how Jesus came? How did he come? Luke 7.34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two statements are statements of purpose. Why he came. He came to serve and give his life away. He came to seek and save that which is lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Somebody say eating and drinking. Jesus came eating and drinking. And in fact, if you really study that scripture, the word son of man is the prophet Daniel's label for the one who comes before God to receive authority over the nations in Daniel chapter 7. So the Jews understood him as this authoritative figure whom God would give authority over the nations. It's what Jesus was referring to when he said all power in heaven and in earth. All authority is given to me. 
And so now Jesus, the Son of Man, the authoritative figure, has come. But how does He come? Does He come with an army of angels? Does He come on the clouds of heaven? Does He come with a blaze of glory? No. He comes eating and drinking. The Jews of Jesus' day would have said that the Son of Man will come to vindicate the righteous and defeat God's enemy. Because, you know, when you ask us religious people about things, we tend to go to the most religious place we can in our minds. And if you would have asked them, they would have pointed to Daniel and said, look, he's coming to take authority over the nations. They would have, if they had the book of Revelation, they would have said, look, he's coming to put his heels on the temple mount and show the world who he really is. They, he's coming with authority and power, but... They did not expect him to come to seek and save the lost. And they would have said that he would come in glory and in power, but they never would have said that he would come eating and drinking. And here's the thing. When Jesus says this in Luke chapter 7, he's not, he's not just talking about eating and drinking to survive for subsistence. Everybody eats and drinks, amen? But not everybody eats and drinks the same way. And they would have never used those words to describe his coming. And Jesus says in Luke seven thirty four, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A glutton is a person who eats too much, and a drunkard is someone who drinks too much. And his enemies accused him of doing that to excess. They had a problem with how much he ate and in the context that he ate. They didn't like that he ate with who he ate with. They had issues with the fact that he would sit down with publicans and sinners. They, they had problems with Jesus because of that. And his enemies accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton because earlier in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and their scribes said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the pharisees we're spiritual we fast and pray more than you guys do and you guys just over there eating they were mad you know what I, i've got a theory it's easy to get mad when you fast a lot <laughs> anybody ever drove past a wendy's or a burger king when you were fasting just got mad in your spirit <laughs> look at what they say they say to jesus they, they've got a real problem. They said, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees fast and offer prayers. But y'all just out here eating and drinking and living it up. You know, they're mad. Let me tell you, this, I didn't plan to say this, but a few years back when I was pastoring, we decided the whole church was going to do a Daniel fast. The whole church. I thought it was a great idea. 21 days, you can fast without really fasting, you know. And what it turned into, you know, you're supposed to eat just vegetables and, and pulse and, and really nothing enjoyable and, and no pleasant bread, no sugar, no preservatives, all this. You can go as strict as you want on the Daniel fast, trust me. And so we, what we really did is we started an all-out war in the church because there were some that were doing it strict. My wife and I, some of them, because we thought everybody's looking at us. They're going to ask us what we ate, you know. We've got to be strict. We're over here being strict. And this one couple comes to church and they're like, we found soy burgers. They taste just like the real thing. I was mad in my spirit. Burgers. We're fasting. Y'all over there eating. It tastes just like a cheeseburger. 
And my wife and I were like, what are y'all doing? That's not Daniel fasting. They're like, well, it's according to the rules. They were legalists is what they were. They were legalism. We following the rules. Look, we, as long as it's in the rules, we can do it. And listen, people started getting mad and fussing with each other. I had people mad, didn't want to talk to each other. Well, they're not doing it right. And that was the Pharisees. They were mad because they were hungry. <laughs> we fast. We pray. Y'all over there eating. What's going on? It was a real problem for them that didn't compute into their religious expectations. They would have expected the mission of the Messiah to be carried out among kings and courts. They would have expected them to be monastic uh, theologians that went and hid in the hills and never ate any food and took vows of silence and sought the face of God and never did anything fun and never enjoyed themselves and never had relationships with people just, just seeking God all the time. That's what they wanted Jesus to be. But that's not how Jesus came. He came eating and drinking. His mission unfolded around the table. And, and they, they expected kings and courts. And, and they expected ascetic practices and fasting and, and prayers and grand prophecies and all this stuff. But what they didn't see coming was that Jesus would take the time to sit at a table with people that he shouldn't have been sitting with. Jesus spends his time eating and drinking. In fact, a lot of his time. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching late into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with grilled fish and loaves of bread. In fact, in Luke's gospel, if you read through it, and maybe you're doing that part or you're coming up on it in your yearly reading, go read Luke's gospel. It's like Jesus is always either coming from or going to or at a meal in Luke's gospel. You start looking for it, and it's kind of like when you're shopping for a new car and you never see that car, but when you shop for it, now you start seeing it everywhere. You go look at Luke after this message, and, and all of a sudden you're going to see, boom, he's always eating. He's always got something in his hand. He's always around a table. He's always referencing food, and, and he's always talking about mealtime. Look, check this out. Just, just bear with me for a second. Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal, which is why the very same passage we're reading from in our text tonight, where Jesus is addressing how he came, that they have accused him of eating and drinking too much. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and warns of the leaven of the Pharisees. Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law, again, at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. And he gives the parable of the kingdom when everybody was invited to the feast and nobody came. So he said, go into the highways and into the byways and bring them where? To the feast, to the wedding feast. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. He says, come down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today and we're fixing to eat. Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. Jesus gathers in one of the most significant moments of his ministry to sit around a table with his closest confidants and friends. Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal after he's resurrected from the dead with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when he breaks the bread, 
and blesses it. Revelation comes and their eyes are opened. And later goes and eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. So how did the Son of Man come? He came eating and drinking. Somebody say, Jesus broke bread. It's what he did. It's how he loved. And, and why would the writers of Scripture take so much time and effort to show us this profile of Jesus? I know some of you are thinking, what has this got to do with loving like Jesus? I'm fixing to show you. Why, why would it matter so much for Luke to detail all of these meals and, and Mark and, and for Jesus to continually focus back on food and the sharing of food? You want to test your love? Let somebody steal a french fry off your plate. I don't share food, right? Anybody ever said that? I'll, I'll share. I'll give you a shirt off my back, but you leave my French fries alone. How? How? Why would they spend this time? Because meals were significant in both Roman and Jewish culture. Meals and day, uh, the day of Jesus were highly stratified. And what I mean by that is, it mattered who you ate with, and uh, who you ate with determined a lot about your status in life and where you fit into the social order. Roman meals expressed the social order, and Jewish meals were similar with the added twist that Jewish food laws made it all but impossible for Jews to eat with Gentiles. And so, in fact, we have in the New Testament, the major controversy of the New, Church, uh, New Testament church in Acts 15 is that Peter won't eat with the Gentile converts. And so Paul stands up and he tells him, you're not loving like Jesus because you're not willing to eat with your brothers. And he calls him and takes him to task. And the whole theology of the church is set in Acts 15 because of a dispute over a meal. And who would eat with who? Somebody say it mattered. It mattered. So meals expressed who were the insiders and who were the outsiders. And Jesus comes and he turns all their meal traditions upside down and inside out quietly. Literally, because at Jesus' table, the outsiders become insiders, and the insiders become outsiders. At Jesus' table, people who had no business being in His presence are welcomed in with open arms. At Jesus' table, anybody can sit down and have a meal with Jesus, and that was radical in His day. The Pharisees in their religious mind and tradition couldn't understand it, but that's the reality of the love of Jesus is he didn't care what socioeconomics said he didn't care what your status was whoever you are he was saying come to the table the table is open the table is spread for you you're welcome at my table Jesus ate with tax collectors he ate with publicans and sinners you know tax co uh, collectors were collaborators collaborators with the romans the people who were occupying God's promised land. And this meant that they were not only betraying their nation, but that they were aligning themselves as enemies of God. And Jesus didn't bat an eye about inviting them to the table. Jesus ate with tax collectors. This is one of the biggest criticisms of his ministry from the Pharisees and those who hated him, is he eats with tax collectors. How dare he spend time with those people? But God sits and eats with his enemies. And that's what's happening in the meals of Jesus. Because it's an amazing expression of the grace of God. And a phenomenal illustration of what it really means to love like Jesus. It was the same with the meals of the Pharisees. 
Their sense of how we are made right with God was reflected in their meals. Their meals expressed who were insiders and outsiders on the basis of moral and religious respectability. If you sat at the end of the table, you were the biggest sinner. <laughs> or the worst faker, one of the two, right? But, but that was how they aligned their tables. And so their meals expressed who was uh, higher on the ladder of self-righteousness. And it was represented by the positions of honor around the table. In fact, Jesus tells a parable, when you come to the table, don't sit at the highest seat. Don't, don't expect the highest honor, but sit at the lowest seat so that other people can elevate. Y'all remember the story? Y'all remember when Jesus addresses that? It's because that's their pharisaical tradition. But here Jesus freely eats with tax collectors and with sinners. He expresses God's grace through his willingness to eat with everybody. He eats with the enemies of God and the self-righteous Pharisees. He didn't care. He didn't discriminate. He would sit down and eat with anyone. This is why he drew criticism for how he broke bread. Because even in the everyday act of sitting down to eat, Jesus was showing his extravagant love for anyone and everyone who was willing to come to his table. How did he come? He came eating and drinking. He came breaking bread. And, and there are three things. As I kind of sat back and thought about what the meals of Jesus tell us about him that we can apply to our own life. There are three things that the meals of Jesus reveal about his character. First of all, they show that Jesus was accessible. How many of you ever met somebody who's important that, that you can't catch, you can't talk to? I was, I was singing at a certain event when I was in Bible college um, at a certain church in the city of Indianapolis, and they had a, a big-name preacher um, that was there, and uh, everybody was excited about hearing him and all that, but, like, you never saw the guy. Before church started, he wasn't there. Like, we, we, got, we sang, like, six songs. He still wasn't there. About 30 seconds before it was his time to speak, they ushered him out onto the stage, and, you know, he took the pulpit, did his thing, ended, and they ushered him back out. In fact, his nephew happened to be sitting next to me, and he, he was walking by, and he stopped, and he was shocked that he saw his nephew there, and he went and hugged his neck and said, hey, man, I want you to come back to the, to the back and talk to me, and then he was off back to the back, back to the back room. He wasn't there to minister. He was there to share a sermon, and he was inaccessible. Everybody but his nephew didn't know who this guy was or couldn't shake his hand, couldn't get near him. You've seen that happen. You've seen those things at, at, at corporations and CEOs and, and famous people. they got guards to walk around them because they're inaccessible. But not Jesus. Jesus was tearing the world up. People were coming by the thousands to see him. And Jesus remained accessible. He remained accessible. He was not too busy. To take time to deal with somebody that everybody else said didn't matter. He wasn't too busy. He was accessible. He was not too important to sit down at the table with people that he knew he would be criticized for fellowshipping with. Not too busy for that. His love was impressive because in spite of the constant demand upon his time, he remained accessible to those who needed what he had. You want to love like Jesus? Don't live in your isolated little world. 
Don't live in your isolated little family group and friend group where you're comfortable and nobody else has access in. If you want to love like Jesus, you've got to make your life accessible to people that maybe wouldn't be the first people that you picked. Or maybe it wouldn't be the people that you want to be seen running around town with. But understand this, if you really want to love like Jesus, you've got to have an accessible life. You know, a lot of people say, well, I would do those community groups, but we're just so busy. We're just so busy. You know, Monday night's date night, Tuesday night's kids' ball, Wednesday night we come into church and we, we come in five minutes late, we leave five minutes early, and nobody ever gets to shake our hand or talk to us. We don't have any friends in the church. We don't do, and, and we're just so busy. We got work, we got kids, we got all this stuff. Let me tell you something. If you want to love like Jesus, you've got to make room in your life for people. You've got to make room in your life to be accessible to people. Because, understand this, we are the body. How many of you believe that? We're the body of Christ, aren't we? We're the body of Christ. Do you know that the human body has what it takes to heal itself? But you start cutting an arm off from the body, the body can't heal what's cut off. But the body can heal what's connected. And so when we become inaccessible, we remove ourselves from the healing equation. We're not healing anybody else and helping anybody else. And guess what? Nobody's helping or healing us either. Somebody say, you've got to be accessible. Jesus was accessible. Not only was he accessible to those who needed what he had, but Jesus was present. Somebody say he was present. We never see him preoccupied when he's fellowshipping and breaking bread with people. You ever talk to somebody that's looking off in the distance? Distracted? Checking their phone? Maybe you sat at dinner with your family and everybody's on their phones and like, why am I here? My battery's dead. I have nothing to do. (laughs) Anybody ever experienced that? Let's, Let's be real. Jesus was present. He was there with them in the moment. Not distracted, but available and present with them in conversations and in questions. When they came and asked him questions, Jesus engaged with their question. He didn't sidestep and stick to the agenda. He was very present in, in their time of need. He was very present. He was right there with them. And so, look, sometimes you don't even have to have the right words to say to help somebody and to love someone. Just the fact that you're there and that you're not just there physically, you're there there. You are present with them. Can make a difference in people's lives around you. It'll make a difference in your marriage if you don't just show up in the marriage, but you're actually present in the marriage. It'll help your family and your kids if you're not an absentee parent who's in the building but is not present. Jesus, you want to love like Jesus? Be present in the moment. Be present in what people are going through. Weep with them that weep and laugh with them that laugh. And and just be there with people while you're there. Who would think that in this day and age we would have to preach that? But we have to preach that because we are so distracted and preoccupied. And we miss so many ministry moments and teaching moments and parenting moments and marriage moments because we are just checked out mentally. Somebody say you got to be present. And not only that, but this is the part I really love. Jesus was not just present. He was purposeful. You didn't just go out to eat with Jesus and shoot the breeze. You didn't just go out to Jesus... Uh, to eat with Jesus and talk about how, you know, the Romans won the, the softball tournament last week. Maybe they talked a little bit about that, but look, before the meal's over, you're going to get something from Jesus. 
He was purposeful in his fellowship. When he broke bread, he always seemed to find himself teaching and reaching. He used his time with others to redeem and to restore people. That's why he was there. His presence at the table was consequential because it mattered and made a difference because he didn't see relationships or meals as a time to be entertained, but as a time to show his love. He was intentional and purposeful with his time. He understood, I'm not here just to shoot the breeze. I am the Savior of their soul. And he would minister to people while he was eating with them. Look, this is the point of community groups. And this isn't just a community group sermon. But this is the point of community groups. Not to get together and do underwater basket weaving and not talk about Jesus. That's not the point of it. The point is for purposeful fellowship. That when you are together with like believers, that we don't want to just sit across from the table and talk about anything that anybody in the world would talk about. Can we fellowship and have a good time and laugh and not be super serious and spiritual? Yeah, we can do that. But understand this, when Jesus loved somebody and he sat across the table, if there was some way that he could help them, some word that he could give them, some wisdom that he could impart, he was not going to leave the table without teaching and reaching for somebody. His time was purposeful. People's lives were changed when they ate with Jesus. Listen, if somebody goes out to eat with you, is it going to change their life or is it going to waste their time? That's challenging, I know. But I started looking at it, and I thought, dear heaven, how many meals have I sat at? And I thought some things, but I didn't say them because I don't want to sound like I was too spiritual. Like for preachers, they think you preachery all the time. And we are. And so we try to tone it down, try to turn that dial down and not preach every sermon that we see flit across in front of us. But, but Jesus was purposeful with his time. He wasn't just out doing stuff to do stuff. But he met Zacchaeus at that table, and he said, Zacchaeus, today salvation came to your house. Today is a day that will make the difference in your life because you sat down at the table with me. Not in a church service. Not hearing me teach on a mountain uh, hillside or, or teaching from a boat with massive crowds. Just because you sat at the table with me, your life is going to be changed. Salvation came to your house because you're having a meal with me. Jesus broke bread. Two men on the road to Emmaus, they're trying to figure it out and put it all together. They don't understand. Jesus is talking with them and expounding to them. But when he breaks bread with them and he sits down and he begins to eat with them, their eyes are open and suddenly they see who he is. Their life was changed by a meal with Jesus. Jesus was purposeful with his time. It gives me a new view of Martha and Mary. Martha was caught up in all of the housework and all of that stuff and we preached about it a hundred times. But Mary knew that Jesus was doing more than just breaking bread. That she had an available, present, and purposeful moment with the Savior. And she was going to do everything she could to take advantage of it. That's how Jesus loved. And, and in fact, it carries over into the New Testament church. In Acts 2.42, the Bible says that after the Holy Ghost has fallen and, and they, uh, they, they continue forward... There are 2,000 people added to the church that day. What do you do if 2,000 people show up to church here Sunday? Here's the model right here. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They said, we've got to teach these people. And listen, not just teaching. We've got to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord God added to the number uh, daily those who were being saved. What happened? They started fellowshipping with one another. They started connecting with one another. They started teaching one another. They, they sat down and they broke bread together. Now, here's the interesting thing is, is in our day and age, it's so easy to go through life without human connection. Anybody ever said or thought, man, I need more friends? Because it's easy just to go to work. It's easy just to go home and you're tired. It's easy to go to church and not talk to anybody and worship God, just you and Jesus. We got a thing going on, you know, and go home and never really connect with people around us. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, when it all started. It all started with air conditioning. Because, look, nobody just sat at home when they didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> Some of y'all remember those days. What did you do? You sat out on the porch, huh? You knew all your neighbors because everybody got home, and they didn't go stay inside and, and kick back and listen to the radio. It was too hot inside, so they, they sat on the porch, and they knew the neighbors. And then, and then it wasn't just air conditioning. Air conditioning brought everybody inside. But, but then they invented fences and gates. Right? Everybody started putting a fence around their house. Now you can go into your fence. You don't have to see your neighbors. Some of you are like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but then it goes beyond there. Then they invented a garage door opener. Right? Now you don't even have to get out in your fenced yard and close your door and walk to the door and see your neighbor. Hey, neighbor, you don't have to do that. If you've got a garage door with a garage opener, you can pull into the back cave. <laughs> The door goes down. You don't have to see nobody. You can go into your air-conditioned house. And guess what? You don't, if you need to buy something, you don't have to go to the store. You can do online shopping. You, you know, it used to be that uh, you had to answer the phone to find out who was calling. And then they come up with caller ID, right? You don't even have to answer the phone and talk to nobody you don't want to talk to. And we, our modern technology has so isolated us that this Acts 2 scene seems so unfamiliar you're telling me every day these people were getting together and eating with one another and, and they, were, they were going to each other's houses and, and they were doing all of this. That seems so foreign to us. In fact, there's a preacher that rewrote this for modern day, this very passage of Scripture. And it goes like this. It says, if it were today, the Christians were devoted to themselves and occasionally got to church when they had time. No one was filled with awe because there were no signs and wonders performed by the believers. Very few of the believers were together together. They had almost nothing in common because they had no real time with each other. And if they sold something, they used money to buy something better for themselves. They ate on the run, kept themselves uh, to themselves, and were rushed to enjoy one another or give praise to God. They claimed to love God, but they really didn't love each other, and they felt very empty and alone. And as a result, most people disliked them, and very few people were ever saved. It's depressing. You remove... Human relationship and connection from the gospel, and it is ineffective. And so how, how do we love like Jesus? How do we share the love of Jesus? I'm going to give you two things in the close of this. Number one, you share the love of Jesus, and you love like Jesus with other believers at church. 
Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How? By not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. How do we love like Jesus? We do it by sharing the love of Jesus with other believers at church. You know, when we come to church, we don't just come to receive. If you, if you could get anything through your head, get this through your head. We exist, say, say it after me, we exist to serve others. Pastor preached it wonderfully last week. We, if we want to love like Jesus, we exist to serve others. And so when I come to church, it's not, ooh, I need a word. It's that I am going to connect with a fellowship of like believers. And today I might be the blesser and tomorrow I might be the blessed. But if I neglect meeting together as the habit of some is, that I will never be able to provoke anyone else towards love and towards good works and no one else will ever be able to provoke me. It starts by worshiping, by fellowshipping, by being connected with other believers at church. Because presence is powerful. Have you ever had anybody say, I'll pray for you? I will pray for you. I do that a lot. You know, people, will you pray for this? Yeah, I'll pray for you. But you know what's better than praying for someone? Praying with them. Has that ever touched your life when you ask for somebody to pray and that someone said, let's do it right now. Let's pray right now. Because faith enters the atmosphere because of presence. In fact, this is not the best example, but say you like to watch movies with your spouse. You get home and you say, you know what, we're going to put the kids to bed and watch a movie. Now, babe, you go in the bedroom and watch it, and I will be here in the living room and watch it. We'll get together later and talk about it. Oh, somebody hear me on Facebook out there tonight. <laughs> it's not the same when you don't do it together. Presence is powerful. And listen, we cannot allow the world around us to reduce fellowship of believers and worship of God to listening to a podcast or watching a live stream or watching a YouTube video of a great preacher out there. That's not what God did when he tied us together and created and knitted and formed and fashioned us as the church of the living God. You were created for community. And if you want to love like Jesus, you've got to be accessible and available to fellow uh, like believers. I'm going to take it one step further. We cannot allow our fellowship to be reduced to worshiping together once a week because our church is our family. Anybody believe that? And families fall apart when they don't spend time together. And it takes more than attending worship services to love like Jesus. It takes sharing meals and moments together. That's why we have community groups. It's, it's about meals and moments. It's about conversations that can only happen outside. It's great. We're going to gather Sunday. I'm going to do my best to preach to people. And people will be blessed. I have confidence that God will do that. But there's something special when two people get together. And it's a two-way street. It's a dialogue that God steps into the midst of. We've got to love, share the love of Jesus with other believers at church. And I'm going to end with this. We have to share the love of Jesus with a committed community of people. Acts 2.46 says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Check this out. When the church gets together, 
And when they're fellowshipping with a committed community of people, they broke bread, they prayed together, they went house to house. And when they did those three things, all of a sudden, this is what happened. They had favor with men. The world took notice. They said, man, what have y'all got going on over there? Like, we want to be a part of that. What kind of group y'all got here tonight? We were, I was with a youth last Wednesday at Johnny's. And just about everybody that came in the restaurant was like looking in our back room there because we had, you know, 40 young people packed into a room. And it was loud. And they were like, what y'all got going on back there? They want to know about it. Oh, that's so neat that y'all got all these young people together. They had favor with men. All of a sudden, people start, I like that church. I like those Christians. Man, they get together. They have a good time. I remember one of the first times we had community groups in our, our first church that we pastored. We, only, our, we were only big enough to have two of them in the whole church. And the whole church went to two of them. The older folks went to one and the younger folks went to the other. I remember we, we won this young couple and they came and they hung out at our younger folks uh, community group that night for about an hour. And they laughed and, they had, and the guy pulled me aside afterwards. He was an ex-Marine and he said, hey man, he said, I didn't know you could have this much fun without drinking. I said, man, you're just now scratching the surface. Tonight was kind of dull. <laughs> I was like, y'all got to come back next week. We have a good time. We laugh together. And you know what? They became a part of the church because suddenly they saw that there's a place for me there. There are people who love me who will spend time with me there. The, 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 they had favor with men. The world took notice. And look, they didn't just have favor with men by fellowshipping. They had power with God. Why? Because... One will put a thousand to flight, but two will what? Put ten thousand to flight. Just by fellowshipping, just by getting together, by meeting together in houses and getting together with other apostolic families and sitting across the table. All of a sudden, we are more powerful in God when we fellowship with one another. When we love people enough to let them in our life and sit at the table. All of a sudden, we're not just getting favor with men. Now we've got power with God. And look what God does. God begins to add to the church daily. God begins to actively direct. He's heaping people into the church. He is directing people to this body of believers because he knows that if they show up there, there's a place at the table for them. There is a place of fellowship. There are friends that will love them, people that will pray with them, people that will knit together and bind together with them. And look, you can never fulfill the will of God for your life if you stay isolated and alone. And you can't love like Jesus if you've been in church so long you're not interested in connecting with like believers anymore. People were saved because there is strength in numbers. There's power in numbers. In fact, I'm going to close with this. There was a, there was a neat corner um, in Flagstaff. We lived just, uh, just south of the San Francisco peaks that are about 12,000, 13,000 feet in elevation. We would drive up there from time to time, go hike and take the kids and explore the mountains. It's a beautiful place. There's a spot on that hill called Aspen Corner. And I've, I've preached about it before because I started doing some research and uh, I found out that the Aspen is the largest tree in the world. And I, was, I, I double-checked that. I said, I've seen an Aspen and they're this big around and like maybe 50 feet tall. I mean, they're big, but they're not that big. The thing is, Aspen Corner... I thought it was an aspen grove of several hundred aspen trees. But what I didn't realize is that underneath the surface, that it looked like many trees, but it was really just one tree. They all had the same root system, and it looked like several hundred, but it was really just one living, breathing organism that filled a whole 
side, this corner of a road in a mountain. It was a beautiful grove of aspen trees. And so here's the thing is, is there's strength in numbers. You can't just cut down that tree. That's the biggest tree in the world because it's connected. At its roots, it's connected. And so, you know, we are connected in the same way as the church of the living God. We're the body of Christ. So, look, their outcome is my outcome. And my outcome is their outcome. And their breakthrough is my breakthrough. And and my breakthrough is their breakthrough because we are the body of Christ. And what happens to them matters to me. And what happens to me should matter to them. Why? Because we are one in Christ Jesus. That we, we all matter. Nobody doesn't matter here. Because we are all one body purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we, if we want to love like Jesus, that's how we have to do it. We have to... Do it in fellowshipping with other believers at church, with a uh, committed community of people. And we have to learn to be accessible, present, and purposeful people with our time. I want us to stand together. I'm going to ask our ushers to come. It's it's time to end. But, man, I I, I know I went about five minutes over. But, man, this this subject so excites me because there's such power... That is present if we could ever just start loving like Jesus, loving like Jesus, forgiving people, serving people and giving people a spot at the table.